Hello and welcome to another episode of Scrubcast. I'm Eamon Ammer. I'm delighted to have Mr. Sen with me again today. Mr. Sen, welcome back. Thanks, Eamon. So today we'll be talking about benign liver tumours and specifically the guidelines that were published by the European Association for the Study of the Liver in 2016. That's the EASL guidelines. Yeah, Eamon, I think um, it is quite a problem that we HPB surgeons face when we see patients who has had some kind of a imaging, whether it's an ultrasound or a cross-sectional imaging or CT or MRI, for um, any abdominal symptoms really, uh, and you have a report suggesting a liver lesion. Tell me, what are the possible liver lesions that you would, you know, if you have a asymptomatic or an incidental liver lesion on an imaging, what are the thoughts in your mind? So because this talk is a is about benign liver lesions, that's one of the things obviously that uh, pops up. But equally, it doesn't necessarily exclude a primary or a metastatic mm-hmm. malignancy either. But yeah, uh, benign liver lesions, benign tumours are the first thing that uh, crosses my mind. Yeah, I think the benign liver lesions, obviously uh, less worrying than malignant because they are benign, but they do come across as a complex problem because it is the diagnostic dilemma which is important, isn't it? You have to prove it for us, for the patients as well as for the clinician that they are indeed benign. Uh, And I think it will be important for us to go through that today. We were probably going to talk about three main types of benign lesions. First of all, hemangiomas of the liver. Uh, Second one is focal nodular hyperplasia or FNH. Uh, And the third one is hepatocellular adenoma or HCA. These are the three groups that we are really going to discuss today. Is that okay? Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think... um Looking at them in that order, I think that's how common they are. So hemangiomas mm-hmm. are the commonest. About 1 in 20 uh, people have hemangiomas. Uh, 1 in 5 if you look at autopsy series. FNHs are less common, so by a factor of 1 in 10. So uh, you find uh, FNHs in autopsies in 1 in 200. And then HCAs are 10 times less common than FNH. Um, malignant potential? Mr. Sen? Yeah, I think the key question is the malignant potential, isn't it? That's what a patient would ask us as clinician. And I think uh, when we go through the discussion of each individual uh, types of tumors, maybe we can discuss that. Uh, What is very important for us at the outset, I think, is to appreciate the fact that all three benign liver tumors are more common in women. Okay, so you would usually have a young woman worried about a lesion in the liver and I think that is the key question in managing these patients. So the main lesion where we worry about malignant potential is hepatocellular adenomas or HCS and we can as we go through this discussion discuss about how to address that issue, how to distinguish it from the other types of benign lesions uh, and how we can reassure the patients really. Okay I mean most of these lesions happen between the age of maybe 30 to 50, sometimes a bit younger. But you've got a young lady who has been referred to you from a peripheral hospital with a lesion in the liver. And I think they would have picked that up presumably on an ultrasound scan. Yeah. And the ultrasound scan shows this to be a hemangioma, a Mm -hmm. clear-cut hemangioma. Um, So you've scanned it and it's a homogeneous hyperechoic mass and it's a small lesion it's less than three uh, centimeters typical features and a healthy liver background 
Um, so what would you do in this case? Uh, in fact, in case of hemangioma, ultrasound is actually a very good investigation. And, and the characteristics of hemangioma, as you have described, a homogeneous hyperechoic mass, you know, it is almost diagnostic of hemangioma. Um, I'm sure you and I have faced in our clinical practice where a CT has suggested a liver lesion, not really sure whether this is a hemangioma. And many times our radiologists have said, just do an ultrasound and that will clinch the diagnosis. So ultrasound is good enough in reassuring a patient who has got characteristic features of hemangioma on ultrasound and as you said are small in size less than three centimeters um, and it is not necessary to proceed to any further cross-sectional imaging. There is obviously a slightly clever ultrasound, a contrast-enhanced ultrasound, which is becoming more and more popular these days. If there is slight uncertainty on ultrasound, uh, the next step, instead of suggesting CT in a young woman, it is probably best to do a contrast-enhanced ultrasound, which has characteristic features like peripheral discontinuous and global enhancement initially when the when the contrast, the bubble contrast is given, followed by central enhancement on delayed phases, which is kind of characteristics of hemangioma and so uh, initial plain ultrasound followed by a contrast enhanced ultrasound both will together complement each other and will give you a diagnosis of hemangioma so that's interesting so the contrast starts on the outside of the lesion yes. and then moves towards the center yeah. uh, slowly on the delayed phases and i think that's the same pattern you also get on the mri and the ct with with contrast as Absolutely. well so it starts on the outside yeah. almost like a capsule but a discontinuous capsule and then moves to the middle. Absolutely. So obviously the two other imaging modalities that you can use is MRI and CT and the characteristics is as you described. Okay. So it's a small lesion and uh, your radiologist is adamant that this is a, a hemangioma. So would you follow this up? So you need to have a very frank discussion with the patient and reassure uh, her that this is a hemangioma and you need to have the discussion as to why you think it's an hemangioma and emphasize the fact that it is a low-risk lesion with no major potential for any complications. And therefore, it does not really need radiological follow-up. Does it need anything at all? Does it even need, you know, any lifestyle modifications, stopping pills? Nothing, or? No, nothing, nothing at all. I mean, in hemangioma, there is, except for reassurance, there is nothing else that needs to be done for follow-up. You will find reports that pregnancy in hemangioma is there uh, in presence of a liver hemangioma. Could that be a problem? Not really, especially in small hemangioma that we are talking about less than 3 centimeter. There doesn't need to be any lifestyle changes at all. Okay, but not all hemangiomas are managed conservatively. There are cases where you would operate, for example... So in, in what cases would you operate? You know, in our uh, career, we have all, all of us have operated on a few hemangiomas. So there are situations where you would operate on hemangiomas. So going back to our last discussion, less than three centimeter, we would rarely have an intervention required for that, for that patient. What about large hemangiomas? I think that is, that is the more important topic of discussion as far as intervention is concerned. Large hemangiomas, which are you know, more than the three or four centimeter that we have discussed or giant hemangiomas, which are uh, kind of classically described by more than 10 centimeter in size, they can be symptomatic. 
Okay, so patients may present not with an incidental finding on scan, but with present with right upper quadrant pain or epigastric pain. Uh, and then you do a scan, you find a large hemangioma with evidence of bleed or thrombosis within the hemangioma, which is the cause of the pain. Uh, and in that kind of a situation, you might be considering intervention in order to control symptoms. So there are hemangiomas where you would have to intervene. And it's, it's worth mentioning that even when you sometimes see a large hemangioma on a scan and a patient who is symptomatic with upper abdominal pain, you can get those cases where the hemangioma was just a red herring. Not all large hemangiomas are symptomatic, even though there might be symptoms, may not be caused by the hemangioma. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. I mean, you would have to rule out other causes of the symptoms before going down the route of uh, are suggesting, I mean, uh, you know, we are talking about uh, minimally invasive procedures like uh, embolization of the hemangioma to something more major like a proper liver resection. There are reports of transplantation for large hemangiomas with, with symptoms. So before going down the route of a drastic intervention for a completely benign condition, one must make sure that we are happy that the hemangioma is the cause of the symptoms. And based on that, yes, you can suggest intervention. Eamon, do you know of any um, any fancy types of hemangiomas which uh, gets reported from time to time? Mm. Um, inflammatory hemangiomas? Well, I know a classic exam one, which is uh, Kasavach-Merit syndrome. And I think the triad for that is that there should be a giant hemangioma and thrombocytopenia and consumptive coagulopathy. I think treatment for this slightly differs because obviously you, you now have the thrombocytopenia uh, and the risk of bleeding. So medical therapy should be tried here. Uh, and do you know of any medical treatment for so You could start off by, you know, by embolizing the hemangioma, yeah. uh, but equally steroids um, mm -hmm. or vincristine uh, with its yeah. anti... Um, I mean, both the treatments you suggest has been widely reported, although, although this is a rare condition. And, uh, and I think you're absolutely right. In presence of uh, coagulopathy and thrombocytopenia, uh, minimally invasive intervention is the first intervention of choice here. And embolization can be quite uh, effective after a trial of medical therapy. There are reports of transplanting patients with giant uh, hemangiomas. Have you ever come across that in your well, practice? I personally haven't, but it is, as you said, it is it is reported as one of those uh, rare situations where you would you, you would transplant. I, I suppose these are patients who have got symptoms or complications of hemangioma, like bleeding and thrombosis, and are not suitable for resection. Okay, that is the sort of situation where you would consider transplantation, but it will be a very highly selected cases. So moving on to focal nodular hyperplasia, which is a less common pathology, but is a, a diagnostic dilemma at times. The guidelines are clear on managing uh, focal nodular hyperplasia, but what is your understanding of the background pathology here? So, yeah, as you said, FNH, or focal nodular hyperplasia, is um, more of a contentious diagnosis, mainly because we're going to talk about the, the next one, the hepatocellular adenoma later on, is the, the, the difficulty in diagnosis between the two, between FNH and uh, HCA. FNH is a polyclonal hepatocellular proliferation, which is thought to be a hyperplastic reaction to an arterial malformation within the liver. 
if you if you compare it with the others and i think in the in the next course of a few minutes we will constantly be talking about fnh and hepatocellular adenoma quite closely together compared to other neoplastic conditions fnh remains pretty stable over a period of time in most of the patients it's quite rare for fnh to become bigger and and, and things like that um because you've mentioned hca as a comparator here with fnh are fnh lesions considered a precursor for uh, hepatocellular adenomas uh, they are not and and that is the important thing in counseling patients is to is to make it very clear that this is a completely different entity if you look at histologically these lesions are very well circumscribed they are not capsulated mass with a central fibrous scar which contains the the dystrophic arterial uh, uh, anatomy that we were talking about and and this central scar is the characteristic feature of fnh uh, and we will talk about that in our discussion with imaging as well i suppose uh, but it is very important to understand that fnh doesn't progress to hepatocellular adenoma they may be found together in the same liver but that doesn't mean there is a is a precursor yeah that mm. is a confusing bit is that they can be present both of them can be present in the same liver mm. uh, and that is the importance of getting the diagnosis right mm. so you talked about the central scar here which is it, it is quite central to the diagnosis <laughs> i should say um, yes absolutely but uh, i mean again for the for the geeks amongst us if there is diagnostic uncertainty here taking a biopsy and staining it um, for glutamine synthase shows you a map-like staining pattern and that also um, gives you the diagnosis. So I suppose regardless of what modality of imaging we choose, the thing that radiologists will be looking for here is going to be the central scar. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... Uh Besides the central scar, the, the lesion itself is quite homogeneous on, on, on whatever imaging that you choose. Um, the lesion appears slightly different from the adjacent liver on the pre-contrast phase of either MR or CT. And it, it will show a strong and homogeneous enhancement on the arterial phase of the scan. Let's say we have done a CT. It will show a homogeneous enhancement initially in the arterial phase with a central vascular supply and then Ultimately, it becomes similar to the adjacent liver on the delayed and the portal venous phase. And that's in contrast to HCC, for yeah. example, where yeah. in the delayed phase, there's this washout. Yeah, um, Does that signify a difference in vascularity here? Here you've got this uh, uh, malformed vessel, whereas you've got more of a vascular supply to a HCC. So you get contrast in with vigor and then contrast out straight away that is absolutely right i mean I, and that is a key feature that we are looking for here isn't it in order to reassure patients is that is this a hepatocellular cancer and, and this has got a very characteristic feature different from hcc uh, on imaging and there is no washout as you see in hcc i suppose the central scar is best seen on an mr uh, and i think we probably do more mr than ct uh, again we're talking about young patients here so uh, if an ultrasound will be followed most likely by an MR. On MR, you will see a sort of an hypo-intense appearance on T1, hyper on T2, uh, and hyper on contrast T1, um, delayed images, um, because the contrast tend to accumulate in the central scar area. The other thing which we have already mentioned, I suppose, is the lack of a capsule in these lesions, which is, again, quite characteristic of FNH. 
So you might get a capsule, but it's it's a pseudo capsule, really, isn't it? Because it's just compressing yes. the tissue around it. Yes, it is uh, formed by the normal liver tissue being compressed by this, rather than a proper capsule of mm. FNH. And you mentioned MRI because of its safety. I'm also aware that MRI is most sensitive in diagnosing FNH lesions compared to CT and ultrasound scan, particularly if you used hepatobiliary-specific contrast agents like Primavist. Yeah, I mean, I think Primavist uh, contrast-enhanced MRI has become quite popular now. There's a little bit of an issue with availability, and most of the hepatobiliary centers, their radiology departments use it regularly. Definitely improves the sensitivity of diagnosing FNH. Very good in distinguishing FNH from NHCA. And also you can combine other modalities. Like, for example, if you have got diagnostic uncertainty, before going down the route of a biopsy, you're going to do a Primavist enhanced MR and a contrast enhanced ultrasound, for example. And that's what is important to do more than one modality to agree on the diagnosis. So is it worth maybe even before referring this patient to get an MRI scan, preferably with a hepatobiliary contrast agent locally, or do you think this should be left to the tertiary center? I think definitely the baseline investigation of an ultrasound followed by an MR liver would be done before referral. In situations where you have got diagnostic uncertainty, I think the contrast enhanced MR is best left with the specialist unit mainly because of the right protocol to be used. If you are using the protocol regularly, then I suppose you get a better imaging and at the end of the day, you need the answer as to whether this is definitely an FNH or not. You wouldn't want to do multiple investigations in different hospitals. Okay, so going back to the easel guidelines, the pathway is actually very clear. You've got a suspected FNH, you get a contrast-enhanced scan, and it does state in the guidelines that an MRI is preferred here. And you then either have one of two things here. You either have a, a slam-dunk diagnosis of FNH, in which case you move on to management, or the diagnosis is doubtful. And if the diagnosis is doubtful, the guidelines quite clearly state that if the lesion is less than three centimeters, then you do a contrast-enhanced ultrasound as the next preferred modality. If the lesion is more than three centimeters, you go straight to a biopsy. And it's worth mentioning here that if the contrast-enhanced ultrasound doesn't confirm FNH, on t so you've done an MRI with contrast, you've done a contrast-enhanced ultrasound, and neither of these have, have confirmed an FNH, you then move on to get a biopsy. But once you've confirmed the diagnosis, Mr. Sen, would this patient require any further follow-up? No, I think uh, it is very clear that once you've got a definitive diagnosis on, of FNH, either on imaging or on biopsy, I must say we rarely have to biopsy these days with good imaging. But if you have had to do a biopsy and you've got a confirmed diagnosis, then you do not need further follow-up. You have to reassure the patient that we have got a definitive diagnosis. This is FNH and there is no follow-up required and, and no specific treatment is recommended either. There is a question that gets asked at this point and again we will probably talk about in the adenomas is that whether there is any uh, relation of development or 
growth of FNH to hormonal treatments like oral contraceptive pills. Do you, do you know any, any relation to... Well, I must confess that when I first started my HPV placement, I did tell patients in clinic at the time that, uh, you know, if they had oral contraceptive pills, they should stop them. But actually, looking at the guidelines, I think that's probably uh, not the right advice. Uh, there is no clear association between oral contraceptive pills of any sort and FNH either development or growth of the That lesion. is absolutely right. I mean, there is no evidence that the oral contraceptive pill has any relation. But I think some of your patients will still be worried about it. So it's worth having that discussion, and which is in a pragmatic way, that's what I tend to do. And if the patients say that, you know, should I change to an alternative contraception, I would say, you know, it's entirely up to you. Uh, but there is no evidence for you to stop oral contraceptive pills. But if you feel that because of this slight worry, you would like to change to a different, that's absolutely fine. Uh, but it's a different discussion when it comes to adenoma. We resected some cases of hemangiomas. Would you resect FNHs? Very rarely, very rarely. I think there are certain situations, I mean, I certainly have resected FNHs, um, situations where the FNH was large and there was diagnostic uncertainty. There are certain situations like large but pedunculated on a stalk, as we say, along the edge of the liver. Yes, there is a, a case for resecting them. If there is a lesion which is expanding, although you have got a definitive diagnosis of FNH, I don't know, if you are a patient, you might say that, yes, I, I don't want this because it is increasing in size. Um, so yes, in very selected cases, we have resected FNH, but otherwise, I would say majority of the time, there is no indication for surgery. Yeah, so basically, if the case is unclear or if it's symptomatic mm -hmm. or any of the morphologies that you described, then at least discuss it at a benign liver tumor MDT and resection may be required there. So if I move on to HCA, which is the more worrying of the three lesions, so to speak, is it fair to say that the two main complications that can arise from a HCA is that it could rupture and bleed or it could turn into a malignant lesion. Yeah, I think that'll be fair to say that these are the two worrying things about HCAs. If you look at all HCAs that we assess, when we are assessing them, we are looking at their malignant potential, but at the same time, the other complication that we get is bleed from it due to rupture. And there are certain worrying features that we look at when we assess the imaging of a patient uh, with an HCA. Uh, first of all is the size. The guideline suggests a cut of, of five centimeters. Um, so lesions more than five centimeter in size are at an increased risk of not only tumor rupture, but at an increased risk of uh, malignant transformation as well. So that is the first um, criteria that we use. Uh, obviously, the second one, which is association of sex with HCA, it is much more common in women. However, HCA diagnosed in a man has a significantly higher incidence of malignant transformation. It's probably due to different molecular subtyping. But if you have diagnosed HCA in a man, we are much more concerned that this is likely to uh, undergo malignant transformation. 
The third factor which determines the prognosis of HCA, I suppose, is the molecular subtyping, which uh, we kind of briefly mentioned before. It's highly associated with the risk of malignant transformation. The highest risk is found in what is known as the BHCA subgroup, and we will we are going to talk about these subgroups in a, in a little bit more detail. Zayman, is that is yeah, that, that, yeah, I, think that do, yeah. I think that is important because that's what determines the prognosis of the adenomas. So one of the subtypes, the BHCA, which we are going to talk about in a second, has got the highest risk of malignant transformation. At the moment, we are not routinely um, doing the molecular subtyping of every HCA that we assess, and it is also not currently recommended in the guidelines. But it is becoming increasingly clear that the molecular subtype is the most important prognostic factor. And in the future, we probably would be doing it routinely to help us with the counseling of the patients. Right. So you did mention the molecular classifications, the subtypes for HCA and their association with malignant transformation. We're just going to go through these briefly now, if you wouldn't mind. I think they are quite important for the written part of the exam, but people can also be asked them um, in the clinical section as well. So there are, generally speaking, three subtypes and then a fourth unclassified type of HCA. The commonest being the inflammatory adenoma, or the I subtype, the IHCA. It's about 50% of the cases. And again, for the geeks amongst us, this is not just one genetic mutation. This is a number of heterogeneous mutations, which all ultimately result in the activation of the JAK-STAT pathway. The second commonest molecular classification is the H-type, or the H-HCA. And that's where uh, HNF1-alpha is inactivated. Now, I'm not entirely sure what the underlying pathways that HNF1-alpha uh, controls, but it seems to result in steatosis within this subtype of HCA tumors. And steatosis is a characteristic feature that you can see sometimes on imaging that will help with the diagnosis. Um, and the third type, which is the least common, thankfully, but is the the most likely to turn into a malignant lesion is the B subtype uh, that you mentioned very briefly earlier, the beta-catenin subtype. Now, that's the one that's more common in males. And, and I think that male factor isn't an independent factor. I think it is all related to genetics, uh, would you say? Yeah, that is absolutely right. And it is very important also to mention in, in this point, I think you talked about the IHCAs. That is a group which is commonly associated with patients uh, with metabolic syndrome and obesity. And that group is the commonest type we see. The BHCAs, which I think constitutes about between 15 to 20% of all the HCAs that we assess, is most likely to undergo malignant transformation. And it is very important for us to be able to identify this subgroup and offer appropriate treatment for them. The B group, the beta-catenin activation group, now that you won't get with the H group, the first group that I mentioned, which is the HNF1-alpha inactivation. These two are mutually exclusive Absolutely mutations. Right, so you get yes. one or the other. But yeah. what you can get is the B group with inflammatory adenomas. Yeah. So the I group and the B group can coexist. They can overlap in up to 50% of the BHCA tumors. They can also be inflammatory. So if you've got an inflammatory group, that doesn't mean 
necessarily that you've excluded the malignant transforming type. That is absolutely correct. Uh, that needs to be clarified in the histology, whether there's an overlap. But you're absolutely right. The H group and the B group are mutually exclusive. And if we go to the radiological features, I, I suspect from what we've said now, really what we're looking at here are features of steatosis, which would indicate the H type, and features of telangiectasia, which I haven't really mentioned earlier. So some form of vascular malformation within the lesion itself. And these are usually found in the inflammatory type. That is correct. So I think it's fair to say that if you see steatosis, you're likely to have the first group, which is the H, HCA. If you see a vascular pattern, then it's more likely to be the second group, which is the IHC. And if you see no pattern, this is where the diagnostic dilemma arises. So this is likely to be the third group or, or something else. But it would have been helpful if there was a, a characteristic feature of the of the one with the more malignant potential, the B subgroup. That's correct. And I think in the in the whole imaging pattern that you have very nicely discussed, this is where MRI really becomes an important investigation, which I suppose is true for all the other lesions that we have talked about today. But MRI done and interpreted by an expert radiologist is key in diagnosing an adenoma and to look at the characteristics of it. MRI can demonstrate steatosis, as you talked about, when you know, you're comparing the fat suppressed and non-fat suppressed sequences in the MRI. But I suppose like everything else we do, you need the experienced radiologist to interpret this properly. And for other lesions where you're trying to find a, a vascular pattern, you do need some form of contrast. Absolutely, yeah. It has to be a contrast-enhanced uh, study. And it's very similar to the FNH where you get the, the filling in the arterial phase and then it just slowly becomes more iso-intense in the venous phase, which gives us the same diagnostic dilemma when comparing it to a HCC. So if you've got a HCC that doesn't have clear washout, you're asking yourself, is this really a HCC or is this either an adenoma or an FNH? I think this is this sort of situation which you describe where we would go into the next diagnostic stage, which is a biopsy. Uh, yeah. And one of the things that is very important uh, when we consider biopsy is that from time to time, you would come across situations where you have biopsied a lesion and they are, you have to remember, very vascular lesions. And percutaneous biopsy carries a fairly high risk of bleeding, higher than a standard liver biopsy. And um, there are different views in different centers, but most centers nowadays would recommend a laparoscopic biopsy for these lesions if there is a diagnostic dilemma because it is considered safer. So that's not because you think there might be a malignant lesion, it might seed, but it's more likely safer, as you say, just to try and get into normal tissue um, and, and to control and, bleeding and from control. the biopsy side, which you can do it under direct vision. If we move on to the actual diagnostic pathway that the easel guidelines suggest, it comes as no surprise that contrast-enhanced MRI is the preferred modality here. Absolutely. Um, it tells you mainly what the size of the lesion is, what kind of lesion is. I presume those that are sticking out, as you say, um, hanging by a stalk, exophytic, those are more likely to rupture mm -hmm. and bleed. Um, and it also possibly could give you a hint at what the subtype, the molecular subtype is, if you've got steatosis, for example, or a particular telangiectetic vascular pattern. The next question then is, so you've got a suspected HCA, you've got a scan, and you've confirmed the diagnosis, either with the scan alone or, you know, with the aid of a biopsy. Does it make a difference what size the lesion is and what sex the patient is in terms of your management plan? 
I think this is the sort of lesion where the multidisciplinary team comes into play very effectively. I think it is in the guidelines very clearly states that an HCA should be managed by a specialist MDT uh, dealing with liver tumors. And as you said, you get a diagnosis by a proper contrast enhanced MR. You document the size, the nature of the tumor, and if possible, the subtype as we discussed before. And the next step, of course, is that if there is still a diagnostic uncertainty, we are going to consider a biopsy. The next stage is what do we do? We have confirmed the diagnosis of an HCA, whether by imaging or biopsy. Now, if you look at the pathway that we recommend and that is there in the guidelines as well, if it is a man with an adenoma, you would recommend resection irrespective of size. Okay, so a male patient with an adenoma, you would recommend resection as we have discussed because of its high risk of uh, malignant transformation. I mean, if you have done a biopsy and it proves to be a beta catenin type or a BHCA, then definitely, yes, there's no question about it that you would recommend uh, resection. Regardless of sex, I presume yeah. in this case. Regardless of sex, absolutely. In women, you know, if it is a small adenoma and you have diagnosed this, you would advise lifestyle changes like we talked about discontinuing oral contraceptive pills because there is a good evidence that these tumors, these lesions are hormone dependent. And if possible, if there is a, a patient you have with high BMI, you would advise to reduce weight. And you can follow these lesions up at an interval imaging. It's very difficult to get a strong evidence of, of what the interval should be. But in general, we would repeat the imaging in six months. If it is less than five centimeter or it's stable or it has reduced in size, by the way, that can happen as well. You know, adenomas can fluctuate in size. So if it is stable or reduced in size, less than five centimeter, then we can move to annual MRI uh, surveillance. Some centers would say that annual ultrasound. But I think it is important to keep an eye on them with an MR for a period of approximately two years before you go on to ultrasound surveillance. If, however, it is more than 5 centimeters, and we talked about size as an important prognostic factor, if it is more than 5 centimeters or there has been a significant increase in size, i.e. more than 20% on surveillance, then you should recommend resection. Um, what about pregnancy? Would you recommend doing anything different in a pregnant woman? So, yeah, that is an interesting um, problem. Pregnant uh, woman with an HCA carries a high risk of rupture and growth of the lesion during the course of pregnancy. So, the recommendation, again, it requires ultrasound monitoring within a sort of an interval of about 6 to 12 weeks. 6 weeks is what we would recommend in our unit is to follow it up with uh, six weeks ultrasound to monitor the size of the lesion during pregnancy. You have to have a strong relationship with the obstetric team who is managing this patient so that you are constantly in touch with them. The current evidence suggests that if it is a small HCA, as we have discussed, less than five centimeter HCA, then a normal vaginal delivery is possible and there is no contraindication and there is no reason why the pregnant woman cannot go through the pregnancy as per normal with proper monitoring as we have suggested. If, however, the lesion is growing when you're doing a six-weekly ultrasound scan, then you can consider embolizing the lesion and arterial embolization in late pregnancy, but that is, again, has its problems and 
you may say that surgery will be a preferred option in the early part of pregnancy if you have identified a lesion which is growing in size. So it needs a very careful follow-up during pregnancy in order to manage them. But they definitely have a high risk of rupture and growth as the pregnancy progresses. Okay, so in the early stages, presumably you're trying to avoid ionizing radiation, which is That's correct, uh, involved yeah. when you're doing an embolization. So yeah. you try and take it out early on if you can. Yeah. Um, we've talked a lot about the malignant potential of HCAs, but uh, not a great deal about the emergency situation that can arise when they rupture. Now, in these cases, is surgery an option or is it mainly something for the interventional radiologists? I think, you know, you treat it as any other intraperitoneal hemorrhage and you resuscitate the patient properly. And the first line in this day and age is an interventional radiological approach to try and embolize an identifiable bleeding within the tumor. But that will stabilize the patient to a point that if you need to resect this, you can resect it at a much more controlled situation. I think trying to resect an adenoma while it is bleeding and the patient is unstable is quite a dangerous approach. And the, uh, the recommendation is to try and embolize first, if possible, with the view that you might need a resection. And once you've stabilized this patient and uh, they get to the point where they're ready for discharge, obviously you will need to figure out the underlying lesion because you've got a rupture and, and this has appeared acutely but you still don't know whether underlying this there is a a benign adenoma or a malignant lesion so when would you consider getting a follow-up contrast enhanced scan in, in such a patient absolutely you know you would need an early follow-up scan in these patients you know what you would find is that because of the rupture and the bleed obviously the imaging is not going to be very reliable so you would want to have a gap of about six to eight weeks before you re-scan uh, in order to try and characterize the lesion uh, and sometimes it needs to be repeated again early in order to try and uh, get a diagnosis. Obviously we have not considered doing a biopsy at the time of managing the bleeding uh, so therefore it is very important for us to get the imaging characteristic looked at by early follow-up scans. Okay and last but not least multiple HCAs previously known as liver adenomatosis if more than 10 lesions. Now, these aren't very common, but they're not rare either. Would you manage them any differently to a single HCA? Yeah, you're quite right. This is a group of patients which is quite complicated to manage as far as the surveillance is concerned, uh, because there are multiple lesions. And as we talked about before, sometimes it's a combination of HC and FNH you have got. Uh, it is, I think, in my experience, by far more common in long-term oral contraceptive pill users where you get multiple HCAs uh, also in patients with metabolic syndrome. Multiple HCAs luckily is quite rare in men. Uh, you, you tend to get single large one in men although they have got a higher risk of uh, malignant transformation. The risk of malignant transformation and bleeding I suppose in multiple HCAs is very similar to patients who have got a single HCA. And if you look at the overall clinical course and prognosis, it depends on the largest lesion. Okay, so what you would do is you would focus on following the largest lesion. As long as you've got the diagnosis correct based on imaging, you follow the largest lesion uh, in the same way as if you were following a single HCA. 
So increase in size and all the other things that we talked about follow the single uh, lesion which is largest amongst the whole lot that you've got. But how do you resect this? Because if it reaches a certain size, for example, according to the, the single HCA guidelines, what, how would you approach a multinodular um, I mean, you, you approach it in the same way as you would approach a single one. You know, if one single lesion out of 10, for example, is uh, starting to grow and has a met criteria like, for example, bigger than 5 centimeter and more than 20% growth, you would resect that one. However, what you will be left with is the others which you need to put onto a very careful surveillance program because obviously there are other lesions that can follow the same pathway. So there is no indication for trying to go for all of them at the same time. However, there are situations where you've got a very widespread disease. You know, you can think about it in a very simplistic way that resecting one would mean you are going through various other adenomas and transecting through them, which is a difficult situation. I think in, in, in widespread lesion, you will have to consider either resection of the largest lesion, which is resectable, or transplantation, because liver transplantation has been very widely reported in multiple hepatic adenomas in patients who are otherwise not resectable for technical reasons. And especially in those cases where there is underlying liver disease as well. Yes. I mean, if there is underlying chronic liver disease and you have got multiple adenomas, definitely the case is very strong for going down the route of considering transplantation. Mr. Sen, thank you very much for your time today. It's been quite enjoyable as expected. Thank you very much, Eamon. I hope we have got all the information out there regarding benign liver tumors and those who are listening to it will find this beneficial. I'm sure we've covered most aspects in the guidelines there. Um, Join me again for another episode of Scrubcast where we'll give the liver a break this time and move on to pancreatic malignancy. Until then, thank you very much and goodbye. Do 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 do